Welcome back to our 10-week series uh, entitled Him in Her. And this week's is going to be on the topic of gender fluidity. And we're going to be getting right into it by looking at some of the rapid changes that have been taking place in our culture. We'll start with December 1952. Nope, not that one. Um, this is well before many of our times. Uh, the New York Daily News ran this story about a George, now Christine Georgensen, who was a World War II soldier who underwent gender reassignment surgery in Denmark because it pretty much wasn't possible anywhere else. And this became the first majorly publicized news story of someone with transgender experience. And the article quoted a letter that Christine had written her parents saying this. Nature made a mistake, which I have corrected, and I am now your daughter. And over the next 60 years, culture became increasingly aware of the reality of transgender peoples. Uh, gender revolution was on the horizon, and it was in 2014, Time magazine published this, the transgender tipping point. The author declaring another civil rights movement is poised to challenge long-held cultural norms and beliefs. Because now that the culture had largely changed its views on sexuality, it was now ready to change its views on gender. Now that the culture had changed its views on the L, G, and B, at lesbian, gay, and bisexual, it was now ready to move to the, up until now, had largely been silent, the T. And so this article featured Laverne Cox. She's an actress in Orange is the New Black um, and was awarded Woman by the Year by Glamour Magazine, which stated... Cox teaches us that gender identity lies first and foremost in the heart. In 1976, here in Montreal at the Summer Olympics, Bruce Jenner won a gold medal for the decathlon. And in 2015, he again made headlines around the world, this time with a Vanity Fair article called Call Me Caitlin, can you put that up? Um, documenting her experiences coming out as a, as a transgender woman, deemed an act of bravery. Or maybe you saw this one. Uh, National Geographic cover story of January 2017 featuring an Avery Jackson who had identified as a girl since age four. We especially love this portrait of Avery, the editor-in-chief wrote, strong and proud. We thought that at a glance, she summed up the concept of gender revolution. And the gender revolution can be seen in many places. It's in movies like The Danish Girl or shows like Transparent, and they, they give us an inside perspective or view of a transgender person's experiences, which include things like facing discrimination and bullying and exclusion. And understandably, the perceptions and acceptance of transgender people are changing. About a year ago, uh, Tinder, which is a, it's a dating app for singles, uh, released a more genders feature under the hashtag all types, all swipes, in which you could choose one of more than 40 different genders, other than male and female. Um, and just this past month, they announced that over 25 million matches had been made using this more genders feature. Actually, Montreal came in number four after London, and New York and Chicago. Um, there have also been changes in our legislation. Last year, Ohio, um, parents lost custody of a child who, um, because they wouldn't allow him to transition. 
uh, Ontario's Youth and Services Minister said, I would consider that a form of child abuse. When a child identifies one way and the caregiver is saying, no, you need to do it this way. And in Canada, as of May 2016, the Canadian Human Rights Act uh, was amended to prohibit discrimination on the basis of gender identity and expression. And as of this past August, Canadians who don't identify as either male or female can put an X in their place, that place on their passport. Um, to change your sex displayed on your driver's license in Ontario, you can present yourself at any services Ontario outlet and declare yourself as the opposite sex. No supporting documents required. Why? Well, the policy stated to reduce the risk of trans and non-binary people, that is people who don't identify as male and female, uh, facing harassment and discrimination because their ID is not consistent with their gender identity. And the gender revolution it has also changed our language. A few years ago, Ontario took the terms mother and father and blood relative out of all of its legislation and replaced it with gender neutral and non-biological terms like parent. The Boy Scouts have become the Scouts to become more inclusive. Certain people argue that the term breastfeeding should be replaced with the term chestfeeding to be inclusive of trans men with children. Now these are significant changes, right? Because, because words shape our thoughts and they can have a lot of influence or control over which way the conversation goes. And I know that in saying this, I've sort of been unloading a lot of information here without really explaining what the Christian response to this is. But what is clear, church, is that we do need to respond. And sadly, on this topic, we have remained largely silent. Even us as a church, we have one of the largest LGBTQI plus communities in our world, right here in our own city. And many of them, I can say, wonder of this church, is it a safe place? And so if you're wondering that here today, I want you to know that Jesus himself said that a bruised reed he will not break and a smoking wick he will not quench out. So the message of Jesus is always good news all the time for all people, especially the bruised and the smoldering, the vulnerable and the marginalized. And that means that any response the church should give should be informed by love, with conviction and compassion for those struggling. And so I hope today that you'll find the church to be a safe place. So we're going to be coming back to the biblical response. But as you can see, the changes have been rapid and they've been significant. And because of that, church, I think we really need to understand well the gender revolution and the topic that comes out of it for today, which was gender fluidity. So we're going to spend a significant amount of time unpacking the concept, the cultural view of, of gender. <clears throat> and I think one of the best ways to understand the gender revolution um, is the terminology and the theory that actually lies behind that. So we're going to be looking at the, the sex ed curriculum, um, just briefly for Ontario and Alberta, the new one. Um, so put up the gender unicorn. Um, so you can see five categories here, um, and I'm going to go through all five, but I'm going to start with the one that you're probably most familiar with, and that is sex assigned at birth 
Now you might notice right off the bat that it's not called uh, biological sex, it's called sex assigned at birth. And that's to reflect the theory that uh, gender, um, uh, sorry, that sex is a construct imposed on you at birth. It's not biological uh, reality. Um, and so uh, this would be determined by your primary and secondary uh, sex characteristics. Uh, primary would be your genitalia, and secondary would be things like uh, Adam's apple or your body hair. And you'll also notice that uh, it says male and female and other or intersex that you can choose from. Now, intersex doesn't necessarily fall under the transgender umbrella. Um, it's actually the I and LGBTQI. Um, and uh, medically, intersex, it describes a number of possible uh, conditions that someone can have, like ambiguous male and female uh, genitalia or um, chromosomal abnormalities. Um, and these conditions are very rare. They affect about 0.02% uh, of the population, or one in 5,000 people, but they're also extremely uh, difficult conditions. Um, interestingly though, medical doctors don't refer to this as a new norm or as a third gender, but rather as a, a DSD, a, a disorder of sexual development. Um, and if you want to go a little deeper, actually, the Intersex Society of North America has this statement on their website. Um, they say, intersex people are perfectly comfortable with either male or female gender identity. And they're not seeking a genderless society or to label themselves as a member as a, of a third gender class. Um, and so <clears throat> that's from the Intersex Society of North America. And, and so that's our first category, sex assigned at birth. And below that, we have physically attracted to and emotionally attracted to. So physically attracted to would be like your romantic attraction or sexual orientation, what we looked at last week, which would include the, the L, the G, and the B, lesbian, gay, and bisexual. And then emotionally attracted to is given in case your uh, physical attractions are actually different than your emotional attractions. You can select that. Um, and so back at the top, we have uh, gender identity. And that's... Um, one's internal sense of gender, whether male, female, or felt other, okay? Uh, Rosaria Butterfield helpfully says, uh, whereas your sexuality is about who you want to go to bed with, your gender identity is about who you want to go to bed as. So whereas your sexuality is who you want to go to bed with, your gender identity is who you want to go to bed as. And this is where being transgender comes in, which is, which is different than sexuality and can be intersex. And so what does transgender mean? Well, this is where your biological sex doesn't match your gender identity. Or you could say this is where your sex assigned at birth doesn't match your gender identity. So you might be biologically assigned female at birth and you feel yourself to be male, and this would be referred to as a trans male. Or you might be biologically assigned male, but you feel yourself to be female, and so this would be a trans woman. Um, and so finally, uh, back to our gender uh, unicorn, if uh, gender identity is your internal sense of gender, then gender expression would be your external sense. So that would be like your clothing, or your makeup, or your voice, and so on. Um, and so, you can see from all of this that Time Magazine was right, that we truly have reached 
the transgender tipping point. And it has moved from being on the outskirts to right at the center of our social consciousness. And our entire society has entered into this conversation about things like how should we regulate uh, public restrooms or uh, what age should children be educated or what about uh, gendered sports? Like what about the person who is biologically assigned male and transitions to female? Should they be allowed to compete in female Sports And so even for many people who are supportive of this theory, it does raise uh, challenging questions. But I want to say that beyond the questions and beyond the politics are real people whose everyday lives are being affected. And they're often, they don't have a political agenda. They're often caught actually in its, in its crossfire. Um, and, and what we need to understand is that the word transgender is a sort of umbrella term and in that, there are sometimes um, people, a number of people under that umbrella, who, who struggle with something called gender dysphoria. And that's that feeling of being trapped in the, the wrong body. One person described their lived experience like this, a, a suffocating costume that you're unable to take off. Or another, even the experience they said of walking down the street and seeing a reflection of themselves in the mirror caused great distress because you're looking at someone who doesn't appear like you think you are. Can you imagine that? Like every time you, you look down at your phone, you see your reflection. Or every time you walk past a mirror or, or you're tagged in a photo, saying, that's not me. Imagine the distress associated. Uh, I found this one particularly helpful. Uh, Sarah McBride, a transgender woman, uh, activist who experiences gender dysphoria, said like this, have you ever been homesick? Like really homesick. Feeling like you need to be home now. You want your bed. You want to be around your puppy. You need to feel safe and secure in a familiar place. It's like that all the time, but you can't go home. In fact, you don't even know where home is. And about one in 200 males and about one in 300 males, uh, females report this kind of distress. And so what causes gender dysphoria? Well, to be, to be honest, no one really knows. It's some combination of nature, uh, nurture, current research. Mark Yarhouse, professor of psychology, says an appropriate amount of humility can be found in saying what we don't know causes it. Um, one thing is for certain, though, that those who experience it don't choose it. And I think one of the, 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 the saddest parts about this is that the mental health studies continually show tragic numbers, that around 7% of the Canadian population will experience uh, anxiety or depression, around 50% of the transgender community will. And another 40% have contemplated suicide some point. See, these numbers, they're, they're heart-wrenchingly, they're, they're staggeringly high. We, we can't afford to be turning our gaze away as a church. And so what are the possible treatment approaches uh, for gender dysphoria? We're going to, we're going to look at three. And the first is affirmative therapy. <clears throat> and so affirmative therapy is where you, you listen to the desires and the feelings of the individual and you affirm them into transitioning into their felt gender identity. So you affirm the desires and feelings and affirm them into transitioning to their felt gender identity. So this, have, this is, as of recently, the most popular approach. And if you uh, consult a gender identity clinic, this is likely the only approach that they'll, um, 
uh, give you. Um, there are several steps that someone could go through uh, for this. The first would be a social transition, so changing your, your clothing or your name. The second, if you're prepubescent, would be to have uh, puberty blockers. The third would be cross-hormone treatment, so males taking estrogen to enlarge the breasts or females taking testosterone to uh, shrink them. And then finally, there would be a sex reassignment surgery, so that would be the removal and the reshaping of the primary and secondary sexual characteristics. Um, so second, that's affirmative therapy. The second approach would be reparative therapy. And this is different in that rather than trying to align uh, the body to the mind, it's an attempt to align the mind to the body. And this is based on a belief that in contrast to gender theory, that gender is actually not entirely a social construct. And so the goal then is to make somebody more comfortable in their biological sex. Um, reparative therapy has become very unpopular today and is banned uh, in several Canadian provinces. Uh, provinces. Uh, supporters of reparative therapy will cite clinicians uh, like Ken Zucker, who was part of writing the DSM. Um, he says this, if a five-year-old black kid came into the clinic and said he wanted to be white, would we endorse that? I don't think so. What we would want to do is say, what's going on with this kid that's making him feel like it would be better to be white? And so you can see from this, a key part of reparative therapy is trying to understand why someone desires to transition to the other gender. Paul McHugh, uh, formerly uh, psychologist-in-chief at, psychologist at John Hopkins Hospital, um, actually one of the pioneers of sex reassignment surgery, um, he ended the practice when he, he came to believe he was causing more harm uh, than help. And he raised this question, if we don't do liposuction on, on anorexics, why are we comfortable amputating healthy genitals for those with gender dysphoria? He writes, I concluded that to provide surgical altercation of the body to these unfortunate people was to collaborate with a mental disorder rather than to treat it. Um, and so uh, this is reparative therapy and we've seen affirmative therapy. And these are the two sort of possible treatment approaches, one seeking to treat the body and one seeking to treat the mind. And then finally, there's one more approach I'll cover, and that is to remove the gender binary, that'd be male and female, altogether. And so it's not the mind that's sick, it's not the body that's sick, it's actually society um, that's sick. So this, this approach, it actually, it, it takes the central idea of affirmative therapy, um, that uh, gender is a social construct, and it, it, it extends it further. Um, so listen to Kate Bornstein, who's a, a foundational voice in the queer trans community, and she says this. <clears throat> I'm called gender dysphoric. That means I have a sickness, a limited understanding of gender. I don't think that's it. I like to look at it as if I was gender dysphoric my whole life before, and for some time after my gender change, bullied into blindly believing in a gender system. And as soon as I came to some understanding about the constructed nature of gender and my relationship to the system, I ceased being gender dysphoric. And so you can see Borstein's approach is to remove the gender binary altogether. It's outdated, and a new fluid understanding of gender needs to replace it. She describes gender fluidity as the ability to freely and knowingly become one or many limitless number of genders for any length of time at any rate 
of change. And so you might be a male this morning, you could be a female this afternoon, or you could be another gender entirely uh, by the time you go to bed tonight. And so all of this comes from Bornstein's landmark book called Gender Outlaw, and it's considered a sort of uh, Bible of the movement. Uh, and formerly a transsexual lesbian, she now uh, describes herself in the book as neither male nor female, hetero nor homo, because she says that gender binary is an obstacle that, in her words, it needs to be done away with, or at least uh, disempowered. Um, and this is, for some, the end goal we need to see of the gender fluidity movement, to, to remove the idea that there's any distinction between male and female. Listen to Judith Lorber. She's a, a radical feminist, and she says she longs for the day when we'll no longer ask boy or girl in order to start gendering an infant, when the information is as irrelevant as the color of the child's eyes. Only then will men and women be socially interchangeable and really equal. And when that happens, there will no longer be any need for gender at all. Well, why? Because if, if gender isn't rooted in any sort of reality beyond our brains, then, then no one, right, not your culture, not your birth certificate, especially not the church, can tell you who your true, authentic self is. And so for some, somebody struggling with a, a mismatch between their mind and their body, there's, there's something then that's, that's deeply uh, appealing about entering a community of, of shared pain, right? That, that a community that understands you, a community that you can feel belonging in. But I want to caution because increasingly, for those who are looking for answers, they're actually given an, ideal, an ideological narrative that goes something like this. And it's given to you so you can find resolution and, and healing. It's this, almost a sort of gospel. And it says, that the problem is my authentic self has been suppressed by the forces of gender binaries and cultural expectations. And what I need to do is I need to break free from my body and modify my gender and be true to myself because only then can I find wholeness and healing. But will this gospel really bring wholeness and healing? I think as the gender revolution grows and as its disciple base expands, we must stop and ask this question, is body, is body and gender binaries really the offender? Many have, have been hurt by gender stereotypes, with some having this incongruence between their mind and body. And so where can they find an answer? And so I hope you can see that it was appropriate that we take a long time to do an overview of where the culture is at on this topic. And now that we've done this, I want to ask the question that what, what does Christianity have to say to this? And we're going to do this by looking at two questions. First, theologically, what does the Bible say about gender? And second, pastorally, how, to, how would I respond to somebody in the trans community? So first, theologically, what does the Bible say about gender? Now, when I ask this question, what does the Bible say, I'm not thinking about the Bible as a sort of arbitrary set of rules. I'm actually thinking about the Bible as, as a narrative, as a story, a better story that responds to that story or gospel we just saw, in which Jesus is the only one through which you're able to find the wholeness and belonging we so desperately need. And so this story, it sort of comes in four acts. 
The first act would be creation. Genesis 1.27 says, And God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And so God creates. And when he creates the universe, he says it's good. And when he creates mankind, he says it is very good. And so there's a, an intrinsic goodness to the creation then of, of humanity. To be created in the image of God, we saw this uh, four weeks ago, means that your identity and your purpose has nothing to do with your circumstance. It has nothing to do with what other people think of you and certainly nothing to do with what you think or feel yourself. Rather, because those are fluid, right? Those are, those are unstable. Rather, it has everything to do with what God has spoken over you. It's he who says who your true, authentic self is. That you don't name yourself, that God names you. This means then your identity is not fluid. It's fixed. It's stable. It's valuable. Um, <clears throat> here's an idea I've heard. I think it could be saying it's like the difference between Plato and Michelangelo's David. See, we've all played with Play-Doh. You're given a few blobs of uh, different colors, and then it's up to you to create something out of it. So you might create like a Play-Doh pizza or maybe some Play-Doh uh, cups. I used to like to play, you know, Play-Doh figurines. Um, and then if you get bored, you just sort of squash it all back together and you start over again. And I think this is how our culture sees identity and purpose. We're presented with different blobs of Play-Doh, and it's up to us to create something valuable out of it, to, to make our mark, right? Redefining ourselves over and over again. And you can see what's appealing about this. You have authority. You're, you're in control. But you can also see what's burdensome about it. What if you get it wrong? What if your feelings change? And I think this is where Plato is different than Michelangelo's David. See, no one goes to Michelangelo's David with the intention of reconstructing it with Plato or taking a chisel to it. No. The intended goal is that you stand there and admire its beauty. And so it is with us. That the intended goal of creation is you stand and admire the good masterpiece that God has made of you. That whether you're born male or female, or a male that feels like a female, or a female that feels like a male, that you are God's good masterpiece. You are not the product of blind forces. You are not the product of purely social construction. You are ultimately made in the image of God. Listen to what the psalmist David said. We, start, we started with this. For you formed my inward parts, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I'll praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. And I think what you find poetically here in knitting and also more directly in Genesis is that this is the care that God puts into forming your inward parts. Knitting you together. It's saying your body matters. Right? In other words, Christianity says Matter matters. You are not a ghost inhabiting a sort of machine. No, you're, you're an embodied being. You're intended to be a unified whole. You're a psychosomatic, psycho the mind, somatic the body, unity. And so recognize gender theory for what it is. 
It's a resurgence of a very old idea, Gnosticism. Gnosticism, right? The idea that the authentic self has nothing to do with your body. One slogan reads, autonomy isn't destiny. Or as one binary person said in an interview, it doesn't matter what living meat skeleton you're born into, it's what you feel that defines you. Living meat skeleton. Our bodies are viewed as sort of hunks of Play-Doh or machines we use to our own end. The mind is good, it's who you really are. The body merely a tool, and in some cases, an obstacle. And so in contrast to this, Christianity says, I think Nancy Piercy points this out in her helpful book, Love Thy Body, Christianity says, or presents a redeemed view of the body. That, that nature is purposed. Your body, it, it speaks. And so biological sex and gender identity are not fragmented and unrelated like in the gender unicorn. Rather, they are both deeply valuable and intended to be a part of your unified whole. And so God created you valuable, belonging to him, intentioned for wholeness, and yet this isn't what we see around us, is it? Right? We, we heard this in the stories of the people we started with who experienced gender dysphoria, the deep distress, a sort of homesickness. We see this in ourselves. We don't see wholeness in our minds or in our bodies. We don't see healthy gender relationships in our society. And this is because the biblical view of gender doesn't end at creation. It continues on to be formed by what something theologians call the fall. And this is the sort of second act, creation fall. That what we experience now is a disorder that has affected everything and everyone, not just those who have dysphoria. That we are all disordered beings. That the masterpiece in some way has become obscured. But no, while it is obscured, it's not obliterated. Uh, Jesus, in his longest teaching on divorce and marriage and gender in Matthew 19, we saw this last week, he, he reaffirms the creation design. He says, haven't you read at the beginning, the creator made them male and female? But Jesus, even after reaffirming the design of gender binary, goes on to recognize, he says, those who are born eunuchs from birth. And this is, this is Bible talk for the, those who don't easily fall into biological categories. And so for those who are intersex, Jesus doesn't pretend you don't exist. He sees you. So what has happened? Why aren't things the way that they're supposed to be? Our minds and our bodies and our hearts, they're all out of whack. And you, you see this in the biblical story of the fall. The, the tree of the knowledge and good and, of good and evil is, is a story about us trying to determine good and evil for ourselves. We want to take control. We want to have authority. We want to define who we are. And so we choose the Play-Doh over the masterpiece. And this is what we do time and time again, isn't it? See, I've, I have no doubt that there are people in this room right now who are struggling with body image, who, who wish that God had created them differently. But do you see yourself as made in the image of God, a masterpiece of him? I also have no doubt that there are people in this room who are, who are not resting, 
Maybe you feel like me, feeling, feeling that you have to continually reconstruct your identity and, and produce in order to feel like you matter, that you're purposeful in this world. But do you believe that God has given you an identity that's infinitely more valuable than any identity you can create for yourself? See, the consequence of sin on the first humans was to go from being naked and feeling perfectly at rest with each other to being naked and ashamed about their bodies, trying to cover, to hide. And so we experience the effects of this in everyday life. Our minds, Romans says our minds are darkened. They're, they're, without God, they're, they're futile. They're susceptible to all sorts of psychological problems. So we can't also, our hearts too, we, we can't trust those either because they'll, they'll sooner tell us what we want than what we really need. And our bodies, they're broken. Paul talks about how creation itself has been subject to fertility, and not just creation, he says, but we ourselves. And the word he uses is, is birth pangs, a sort of rending or tearing apart of two different things, agonizing pain. And so this is the acts of creation and fall. This is our world, right? It is both a masterpiece and it has been obscured, but not obliterated. And so who will redeem it? The third act. That Jesus, our creator, he takes on a human body. See, this is the ultimate dignification of matter and the body that Jesus who belonged in heaven gave it up in all its fullness to come down to earth and inhabit our distress and disorder. And Jesus did know distress. He knew it in his life. And he certainly knew it in his death. All, all our distress, all our disorder, all our rebellion are heaped on Jesus and he takes it to the cross. And Jesus knew what it was like to be looked on with disgust. Right? The crowd, we the crowd, mocking him, abusing him, scorning him for who he said he was, hating his identity, a crucified creator. And it's been said that no greater dysphoria has ever been experienced than the perfect son of God who knew no sin taking on sin for us. Paul said, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. So for your righteousness, Jesus was crucified. He takes on the burden of your sin and mine so that you can be redeemed. His body was given and broken for us so that our broken bodies might be given to him. Church, you can give your body to Jesus. You can trust the crucified creator with your life because as creator, he has the authority and wisdom to know what's best for you. And as crucified, you can trust him because he's given it all for you, for your good. You can trust a crucified creator And that Jesus, he didn't stay there. He was raised again to life by the power of the spirit and he extends it now to us, that that wholesome healing presence to us. And so you can see in this, it's, it's not biology and it's not binaries that become disempowered. It's actually distress, disorder, and sin. And this is a different gospel then, isn't it? But this is a better gospel. 
That true freedom is not found in the absence of binaries. It's knowing that you are welcomed and belong in the presence of Jesus. And so this doesn't mean, though, that everything's going to be easy. But the Spirit of God, that same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, is able to saturate you with his goodness, restructuring you, helping you to follow him, helping you to carry that cross of suffering. And we all have a cross to bear, don't we? But for a season, a season that will end. Because as Jesus was raised in his physical body, this begins to show, as he was raised in his physical body, what the future will be like. And this is the fourth act. This is our hope. That the rest and the belonging that the first humans experience will then and soon be experienced again when heaven finally meets earth. That heaven is our home. For Christians, <laughs> while we are on this side of heaven, we're always going to sort of have this sense of not belonging. And so Christians then of all people should be able to relate to that feeling of not being at home in this world and in our bodies. But heaven as a home, I want to say, it's not just described as pie in the sky in the sweet by and by, a place. It's actually much more than that. Now. The year my mom died, I went to a summer camp for a few weeks. And after about two and a half weeks, the camp ended and I came home. And I was pretty excited to come home. I flew with a friend and he lived on the other side of Montreal. And I got home late at night. He said, come stay at my house. I said, no, man, I'm feeling kind of homesick. I, j I just really want to get home. So I drove home in the middle of the night. It was two in the morning and I got home. And the house was deserted. And I had forgotten, you know, that uh, my dad was away for the summer. My sister was in Texas. My brother's in Illinois. I don't know where my other sister even was. Um, <laughs> But this was a really strange experience for me because never before had I been home and yet it didn't feel like home, right? That I could be at home and yet I felt this sense of estrangement, a, a sense of not belonging in my own home. See, I had been in the right place, but I hadn't realized how much people make the place of home. And Jesus in John's gospel actually says something like this. He says he, he, he's going to go away and the disciples ask, where are you going? How do we get there? And the interesting thing is that in response to these questions, Jesus says, he ultimately says, the answer to these questions is me. That I am the way, the truth, and the life. That the place you're looking for is actually a person. It's me. And so are you looking for rest? Are you looking for belonging? Are you looking for home? Those can ultimately found, Jesus says, in himself. So won't you come home? I want to close with a few pastoral remarks on what I would say to the transgender community. The first question would be this. Is, gen is gender binary or fluid? My answer to this question is yes. That God's good design was male and female. However, our theology of gender doesn't stop at creation. It extends into the fall and its effects. And so, yes, 
Some people will not experience gender as maleness or femaleness. But then the question should become, do we choose to define ourselves by God's good intention or by, why, or by what we experience in a fallen world? And what I'd like to say to that is this, that Paul always talked about living in the future in the present, that we are to embrace our newness in Christ, even now when it's not yet fully realized that gender actually is, we find out, in the new heavens and the new earth. It's not done away with. Jesus was raised up to life in his, his male uh, body. And so I think we are to live with the expectation of what God will make us in the future, in the now. And so... True stability, then, is offered when we find identity in God's words over us, isn't it? Because essentially, a fish out of water it isn't free, and the best thing we can do for our flourishing is to actually swim in the waters, I would say, of God's good intention. And so you ask, what happens if you don't fit into typical male or female stereotypes? What happens if you don't fit into typical male or female stereotypes? I think that's fine. <laughs> I don't think that the Bible promotes gender stereotypes for us to, to latch onto and to be forced into. I think the, the idea that rather the Bible promotes through um, the prohibition of cross-dressing in Deuteronomy and through the, um, the differentiation of role worship, the roles in worship in 1 Corinthians, is simply that, that gender is distinctive and not interchangeable. And that cultures in their own time, in their own way, will actually uh, end up celebrating or, because of the fall, abusing that distinctiveness. So I don't think we need to agonize over maleness or femaleness. And I know, moving on, I know uh, from conversation that some of you are wondering, what do I say to family or friend who experiences gender dysphoria? Um, and, and so, if you're here, and if you're struggling with gender dysphoria, I want to say that the first thing that I would want to do is I'd want to hear your story. I'd want to hear what you'd experienced, and I'd want to, as appropriate, weep with those that do weep and pray with you. And then I would want you to know this, that you are welcomed by God, that he sees you, that you're not invisible to him, that he doesn't pretend that you don't exist. And rather, he, he invites you to come just as you are, whereas affirmative therapy says you need to change yourself, you need to modify yourself in order to find true fulfillment and identity. Jesus says you don't need to modify yourself. Come as you are and find acceptance and belonging in me. And that's what we're looking for. Galatians 3.28, Paul says this, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so Paul says we're all one in Christ Jesus. Does this negate gender? No. But what it does proclaim is the good news that in Christ you are given a new identity that transcends all of that. And so if anyone is in Christ, the Bible says, new creation, new creation. And so don't view yourself as your label. 
view yourself primarily if you're a follower of Jesus as being in Christ and let that inform every other aspect of your being. Another thing I'd want you to know is that Jesus is not distant to you in your distress. That while people might have looked on your experience and and dismissed it or tried to, to minimize it, Jesus does exactly the opposite and he enters into our distress. He doesn't minimize it. And he comes alongside us and he says, it says his spirit sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. And so gender dysphoria, it's not sinful in and of itself. It's a result of the fall. It's a result that this world is broken. That we all experience that. And the gospel, it doesn't promise wholeness from dysphoria in this life. But what it does promise is God's Holy Spirit to come and to be present with us. So we can be home. And so while I think that Jesus is ultimately the answer to our brokenness, I would also encourage you to seek counseling and care in places like Christian community. And I would actually advise you against, and hear me saying this respectfully, any therapies that seek to undermine your embodied self. Like we saw, I think Nancy Piercy asks um, a question that should be asked, and that is, why is it considered acceptable to carve up a person's body to match their inner sense of self, but bigoted to help them change their sense of self to match their body? In the longest uh, longitudinal studies that have been done, people who undergo sex assignment surgery uh, do not report statistically level lowers of anxiety and depression. In fact, an astonishingly 80% of children actually end up growing out of gender dysphoria. And, and sex change regret is a real uh, thing. And so hear me saying this with the deepest compassion. I'm not trying to, I, I'm not minimizing your distress, okay? I, I'm not minimizing that at all. But rather, I think we need to ask, what would God say is the best path for our flourishing if he knows what's best for us? And finally, uh, for the church. Let us welcome and extend great patience in our convictions and compassion. That no one should walk alone. This is what ultimately we all need to hear. That as Jesus entered into our distress and comes alongside us, right? We don't, we don't observe from a mountain. We actually enter into the valley of tears like our Lord did, okay? And we carry, he says, one another's burdens. And so like our crucified creator, we're all called to take up a cross in this life. And I know I touched on this last week when I spoke about self-denial, asking you what your cross was. And maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking, well, I don't know what my cross is. I, I can't think of any crosses that I'm called to carry. And I just wanna gently say this to you that if you cannot think of what cross you're called to carry, your life might be more characterized by compromise and comfort than by Christ. And yet his grace is extended towards you. Repent, turn to him, follow him, take up your cross, follow him. And so the arc of history is long, but it does bend towards wholeness and belonging. And friends, our suffering, it will not last forever. And rest and belonging can be experienced 
in Jesus. Jesus said, come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Will you come home? Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you said that you are the way, the truth, and the life. And the answer to my distress, God, and the answer to the disorder in my own heart is found in rest and home and belonging and you and the sweetness of your presence. So living spirit of God, would you fill us afresh with a sense of your goodness and your presence right now in the name of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for anyone here who is struggling with dysphoria. Father, I pray that they would know that they are loved by you, that you welcome them home, that you view them as holy and beloved by God, that there is no shame, that this is not a sin, but rather, Lord, you embrace them with your presence and they can find wholeness in you. So, Father, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.